the summary that you can take from this is that if you take three to six milligrams per kilo caffeine, it will provide 2.5% improvement for men and women if you do anything over five minutes of, acti of endurance activity. So that's the overall summary. The Triathlon Show, Durant 34. everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview dr ajmal ali he's an associate professor at massey university in new zealand and one of the authors of the most up-to-date meta-analysis on the use of caffeine as an ergogenic aid in endurance sports so in this episode, Dr. Ali discusses this meta-analysis, which includes 44 studies and more than a thousand total participants, the findings that uh, they came to, the practical applications for us athletes, and also some limitations and uh, direction for future research on caffeine in endurance sports. So we really go deep here, but there will definitely be tons of great practical takeaways for anybody who wants to get the most out of their performance in which case caffeine certainly is something that is worth experimenting with, at least, because it has the potential to be an, an actual beneficial ergogenic aid. So we'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They create electrolyte products of different strengths, and sodium in particular is the main electrolyte that uh, we need to potentially replace, at least in longer events, where uh, we can actually run low on sodium and see some negative consequences from that in terms of uh, reduced performance or nausea or cramping. And especially if you are somebody that loses a lot of sodium in your sweat, then this can be a really, really important thing. And the longer the race, the harder the conditions, the more important it becomes and can become almost a make or break thing. One of many make or break things, of course, in a long event. Uh, but uh, a good way to start is to take their free online sweat test under the free hydration plan tab in the menu bar and that consists of uh, 10 simple questions in a sort of quiz format about yourself and that will actually based on validated data of with medical grade equipment give you an estimate for how much sodium you might be losing in your sweat and based on that you can then tailor your electrolyte intake to what that estimate is and if you want to use precision hydrations electrolytes for that then i would recommend that of course i love the products and in addition to providing me with uh, the sodium that i need they're also very tasty i want to say but you can get 15 percent off with the promo code that triathlon show one five and then we have roca that you can find on roca.com roca have in the last couple of years really made a big effort into uh designing and producing and manufacturing the world-leading glasses including both sunglasses but also now moving into prescription glasses and prescription sunglasses for both performance in sport but also outside of performance the day-to-day -day. so now they have a big range of products in in all of those subcategories of of eyewear that are really top of class when it comes to innovation and uh, design and uh, quality of build and so on. Uh, so check them out and you can get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash 
TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Ajmal Ali. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Ajmal. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. Halfway around the world, so I really appreciate the time to talk to you and, and explain about some of my research. Yeah, it will be uh, be a really good one. I've talked a bit about supplements in general or organic aids in endurance sports before, but never done anything specific on caffeine, which is what we're going to talk about here. You've uh, basically put together the the latest and greatest meta-analysis on that specific topic. So can you talk a bit about the background of uh, that uh, that topic in general and uh, and the meta-analysis that you put together? Okay, thank you, Michael. First off, I must acknowledge my uh, PhD student, Kyle Southwood, who did a lot of the background work on this paper, and also my colleague, Kay Rutherford-Markwick, who is uh, co-supervisor for uh, Kyle, and also someone who wasn't mentioned on the paper was my other colleague, Dr. Claire Bardenhorst, who is a uh, quite a renowned Ironman triathlete herself here in New Zealand. Now, caffeine is, uh, is an ergogenic aid, has been around for thousands of years. The Chinese actually used it for medicinal purposes about 5,000 years ago. And about 600, 900 AD, tea was starting to be used as a beverage in China. And uh, the Han Dynasty there started bringing uh, the caffeine into the mainstream or through tea. And it was around the ninth century in Ethiopia, of all places, where people started using balls of fat mixed with caffeine before long marches for their um, armies because of their, um, you know, the ergogenic effects. And there's an interesting story about a goat herder who noticed that his goats, if they had a specific type of bean, ran around faster. And he mentioned that he had it himself. He talked to the monastery and that sort of took it into Middle East and into Europe and caffeine and coffee, as we know it, uh, started from there. Now, in terms of the academic literature, Rivers and Weber in 1907, they presented a paper, the first paper of caffeine as an ergogenic aid in, at the Journal of Physiology, and they really showed the importance of caffeine for muscular capacity and uh, improvements in, in performance. Um, but they did talk about individual responses, and that's something I'll come and talk about a few times today in my, in my, um, in my talk here. Now, WADA, the World Anti-Drug Agency, they've, they put caffeine on the ban list in 1984 because of some reported abuse of caffeine. This was published in a sports medicine journal. And as a result of those findings, uh, WADA banned caffeine for athletes. And that ban was for about 20 years or so. And the amount of caffeine in urine had to be above 12 micrograms per uh, milliliter of urine, which, to be fair, you have to have a lot of caffeine to actually see that uh, in, in the urine. And because of its ubiquitous nature, everyone has caffeine or, or you know, 90% of the world's population have some sort of caffeine every single day. It got taken off the ban list in 2004. And that's sort of time when I just finished my PhD and I was looking for other projects to do and uh, I got interested in caffeine research. And I've had several studies uh, since then. And there was a really nice study out of Spain by Juan del Rosa, uh, who, who put together a really nice study looking at 21,000 samples, urine samples of elite athletes between 2004, 2008, and showed that 75% uh, of athletes, so three out of all four athletes at this elite level were consuming caffeine before or during com competition. And uh, only 0.6% of them would have failed 
the previously held, um, uh, you know, urine uh, amount in the urine. So it just shows how ubiquitous it is. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, which is relevant for this discussion, is that it's mainly endurance athletes who take caffeine and, and older caffeine, uh, sorry, older athletes as well. So that's sort of where my initial research came through. And uh, I, I've done several studies looking at uh, in female athletes, in uh, sports teams, in triathletes, in cyclists, and, and so on. And it's, it's a really interesting area. So when the ban was put in place, how, how much was known at that point about the performance benefits of caffeine? And, and how did that sort of then develop through the coming decades and, uh, and, and until the time when you started uh, working and studying caffeine? Okay. Well, there was a train of thought that caffeine should not be used because it's a diuretic. Caffeine increases the amount of urine output. So, uh, the suggestion was you shouldn't be drinking coffee, you shouldn't be drinking tea for exercise performance. But in the late 70s, there was some work out of John Ivey and Dave Castile's lab, and they showed that uh, having caffeine increased lipid mobilization and utilization and uh, it improved performance. And their rationale for it was that because the body was utilizing the fat, it then spared the muscle glycogen. That's stored form of carbohydrate in the muscle which then allowed people to improve their endurance performance but more recent studies did not really show that so uh, although fat may be mobilized yes it might be able to get get uh, get it in the system but it doesn't really get taken up in the cells and it doesn't get utilized and it doesn't get used as a fuel so more recent studies suggest other reasons for caffeine metabolism can you go into that what, what are those reasons yeah okay so uh Caffeine has caffeine can actually be metabolized by all most of the organs in the body, and uh, it it has lots of different types of effects. And there's lot because it's so complicated. Uh, we've suggested that it could do this for this type of performance, or it could do something else, like the meta metabolic reasons. But the the wealth of evidence and the consensus seems to be that caffeine is is really a way to um, block the effect of a certain uh, compound called adenosine. Now, adenosine, as athletes will probably know, uh, ATP is the energy currency of the cell, adenosine triphosphate. So as you go through the day, adenosine levels build up and it makes you feel tired. It makes you feel fatigued and it's sort of a natural cycle so that you do go to sleep later on at night. It gives you feelings of tiredness and lethargy. And as we exercise, adenosine breaks down as well or ATP breaks out into adenosine and that builds up again and again gives us these tiredness feelings. Now, caffeine has a very similar structure and shape, metabolic or molecular shape to adenosine. And so basically it masks the effects of adenosine. And we talk about caffeine as an adenosine antagonist. And what that means basically, if adenosine is a police, it stops the police from working. And adenosine controls the other neurotransmitters like dopamine, like glutamate, like um, uh, adrenaline and so on into, into the brain. And it seems to be that it's the effect of caffeine on, uh, on these neurotransmitters or adenosine that controls the neurotransmitters that seems to have the most impact with regards to performance. Now, caffeine is present in over a thousand drugs uh, available around the world. And because of its uh, effects, its adjuvant effects, it can speed things up and it can slow things down. And so from a pain relief perspective, what caffeine does is reduce the uh, 
feelings of tiredness, reduce the feeling of exertion, reduces the feeling of pain. And so you'll find it in most pain medication, uh, caffeine. And uh, so there's some of the reasons why we think, especially for endurance performance, that caffeine is a really good ergogenic aid. And let's talk about dosage a little bit. What sort of doses are needed to see those performance benefits? Okay. Uh, so the, in the general population, let's let's talk about how much caffeine is in different things. So a can of cola typically has about 35 to 40 milligrams of caffeine, whereas an energy drink, let's say a 500 mil of energy drink, might have about 140, 150 milligrams. And uh, a cup of coffee typically as a rule of thumb, because it depends how you brew it, about 100 milligrams of, of um, caffeine. And, and, sh and a shot of espresso, what would that be? Uh, an espresso, possibly about the same. Again, uh, 100, 120 milligrams of caffeine. Mm -hmm. And But from an athletic perspective, we really talk about how much per kilo body mass. Obviously, if you're a much larger individual, you'll be able to metabolize more caffeine, whereas if you're a smaller individual, you will... Um, you'll have a, you know, a relative size effect. So we talk about milligrams per kilo body mass. So the typical person who a moderate user of caffeine might have three milligrams of caffeine per day. So if you're 70 kilos, that's about 210 milligrams of caffeine, maybe two or three cups of coffee. That's a moderate user around the world. Whereas uh, what we call a naive user, one that doesn't necessarily use caffeine, might be less than one milligram of caffeine per kilo per day so caffeine is found in all sorts of different things in chocolate in uh, medication as pills obviously in caffeine in, in tea in certain lemonades in cola and, and so on so some people don't actually know how much they might actually be taking uh, a heavier user is someone who might be having over six milligrams of caffeine per day and it seems to be that the scandinavian countries and netherlands and some of the european countries have a higher caffeine usage than other places uh, around the world Now, from a research perspective, most studies use a dose of between three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilo body mass. So for me, I'm about 70 kilos. I'd be having approximately three, two and a half, three cups of coffee a day uh, to maybe four or five cups of coffee. That's the equivalent amount of caffeine that we think is an ergogenic effect for most people. In our study, in our meta-analysis study, the mean of all the studies, of the 44 studies, is about five milligrams of caffeine uh, per kilo body mass. Um, and the type of caffeine that people use, obviously, caffeine can be found in about 60 different types of uh, plant products, uh, but we mostly get it for coffee, obviously, through coffee beans and tea, through the tea leaves. But uh, typically, we use for research anhydrous caffeine. So that is the, the um, synthetic form. It's, it's the chemical form, if you like. Anhydrous simply means without water. So it's in pill form. It's in powder form. And that's easy to control. It's also got no other contaminants. Obviously, for pre-workout supplements or energy drinks or coffee, there are sorts of, lots of other things in there which could mask the effects or which could cause adjuvant effects, which could cause uh, you know, other things going on which we may not necessarily need. So for most research, we typically talk about three to six milligrams of caffeine that is used as a, as a supplement for, uh, for most athletes. And in this research, it would generally be taken as uh, a dose, as one sort of dose with, let's say, an hour to go before the, the competition or the event. Is that correct? That, that is correct. And there is a whole, 
you know, whole body of research which looks at how long before the event you should take caffeine. It takes some time, just like anything, it takes time for the body to uh, digest and absorb, assimilate, and then take it through to where it's required and then get metabolized. So um, it, typically for endurance athletes, we look, we talk about 60 minutes before exercise. It seems to be for most people, that's when the peak caffeine in the bloodstream will be available. And that's when it's available for obviously uh, having the effects on, um, on, on the brain. Mm. But for some other athletes, for for example, if you don't necessarily need caffeine for a long period of time, you can have it three hours before or up to three hours before if it's a much shorter duration activity because um, that we definitely know then that caffeine will have uh, its peak. The other thing to note is caffeine has a half-life of between three and a half hours. So from its maximum, it takes between three and a half hours to three to five hours, sorry, to get to 50% of that and another three to five hours to get 50% of that. So the half-life of caffeine is about three to five hours. So hence, if it's a really short duration activity you're looking to do, take it a few hours before, maybe two or three hours before. If it's a more longer endurance activity, uh, typically an hour before. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So let's, well, first of all, let's uh, tease the results a bit. Like just the general consensus of how big a performance benefit can uh, is the scientific consensus that caffeine can give in endurance events all right well, that's a really good question and i would like to take a step back and explain some of the aspects related to these types of studies so that our uh, listeners can can be aware of of the information so some of the other meta-analyses that's been performed in the past they're either too old one of them was done in 2004 when the uh, the studies there were uh, still had the, the wider ban, if you like. Others included energy drinks, so there's contamin other contaminants in there, and some of them used time to exhaustion and other different methodologies. So we sort of said, well, if it's too old, it's obviously not necessarily going to be relevant for now. We want to just look at the effect of caffeine, not anything else, and we want to look at performance as opposed to capacity, because performance is related to the real-world setting rather than a, a lab generated uh, setting and there are different types of reviews as well so a narrative review is uh, basically one where uh, the um, the reviewer or the writer or the authors will pick a topic and pick the relevant papers that they think is relevant for that and write their paper and that's been critiqued because you can bring some bias in and pick the certain ones and and, and so on whereas a systematic review you have a, a specific method in place to uh, look at all the studies available, and then pick and choose. So it's a bit more objective. Whereas a meta-analysis, this is like a pooling of data. Most of these types of studies, uh, Michael, are very hard to complete, very hard to recruit, and um, very expensive to perform as well. So we typically have relatively small sample sizes. So a me what a meta-analysis does is if you get all the all your ducks in a row and can look at all the studies that have a similar sort of theme and a similar methodologies, you can pool all their results. So going from a sample size of 10 subjects, you can go to a thousand, for example. So you can massively increase the sample size. And also in that, we can provide a, a, a bigger uh, impact or more firm uh, conclusions based on the available evidence. So this study that we performed was a meta-analysis, is the most recent meta-analysis, and we went to really great lengths to try and figure out how best to design it and uh, uh, what to look for. And as a result of that, we had some strict inclusion criteria uh, when we looked for the relevant papers. 
We only used studies that looked at caffeine, not caffeine and carbohydrate, not caffeine as a pre-workout supplement, not with energy drinks, not with coffee and, and so on. So just looking at the effect of caffeine uh, on its own. We also wanted to look at what typically people use. So we, we put a minimum amount of three milligrams per kilo body mass and above. That's what we wanted to look at. And we also wanted to look at time trial as opposed to uh, time to exhaustion. One of the some of the earlier studies, they use time to exhaustion. So time to exhaustion basically is you run on a treadmill and go until you can go no more. I've done those sorts of studies and it's not really real life. There's, there's no end point. You just go however long you can. So with those sorts of studies, you can see massive differences between an experimental and a placebo trial. Whereas a performance type study or a time trial, there's a specific end goal, whether it's time or work output or distance. And, and so we chose the time trial type studies, either power output or performance time. And we also wanted to look at endurance exercise per se, because that's what most of the you know, research suggests that caffeine will work on. And we chose as a minimum of five minutes uh, of exercise. And, and, and one note uh, on the time trial versus time to exhaustion, I think that you actually wrote this in your paper as well, but uh, in general, like uh, if we're talking about a sport like cycling where you can measure power, a 1% increase in power output uh, corresponds to something similar in terms of improvement in time trial performance. Not exact, but something in the same, uh, at, at, of the same yeah. magnitude. Whereas an, a 1% increase in uh, power output in a time to exhaustion test can lead to something that is uh, an order of magnitude or more uh, bigger uh, greater in the improvement in the time to exhaustion test so let's say 15 15 20 percent or something so that mm -hmm. that is what you're talking about just for the listeners to be aware of why the time trials are probably the more accurate tests in terms of determining performance compared to time to exhaustion that can be quite sensitive and show perhaps too great effects rather than what they actually should be doing that's exactly right there. Everything you've said there is spot on. So with when we have a definitive time, so if it's a 60-minute time trial and we want to see how much power output we can generate over that 60 minutes, or if it's a 40-kilometer time trial, we want to see how quickly we can get to uh, 40 kilometers, we have a definitive end goal. And it's more realistic relative to what happens in, in the real world. And uh, so typically people, the, the one that most researcher seems to use for time trial is the one that Asker Eukendrup has organized, a 60-minute, one-hour time trial for cycling, and that's the one that's most uh, utilized. Uh, and others might use like a 10-kilometer race on a treadmill as a time trial that way, but they're much more realistic. And also, they also usually come with a smaller um, change that you see in, in these sorts of experiments. And as you say, 1% improvement in a time trial equates to about 15% improvement in a time to exhaustion. So that that's, that's the thing. And the other thing that Will Hopkins, a renowned statistician, talks about is the minimum worthwhile effect. And typically for athletes and high-performance athletes, it's about 0.5%. So if something can improve your performance by 0.5%, that's a meaningful difference in the real world. And uh, so time trials are much, much better uh, at that and that's part of the reason why we were quite um, you know quite strict in our criteria uh, for looking at these papers so uh, how many papers did you then end up finding that met the inclusion criteria and, and what was the pool number of uh, study participants in those studies 
Great question. Thank you. So we part of the thing about a meta-analysis is that we go through a systematic approach of searching for the papers, rating for them based on previously ordained uh, uh, criteria, and then giving them a ranking out of 10. And if any below 6 out of 10, then we don't even include those in our um, pool data. So they go through various things, and we do this independently. So two, two or more researchers will do this, and we agree on uh, on the final inclusion. And then we we do the statistical analysis on, on all, of, all of those, and we look for the percent change. We also look at something called effect sizes to look at small or moderate or large effects from a statistical perspective. And in this particular meta-analysis, uh, we found initially 1,392 studies that looked at caffeine or various elements of caffeine with endurance performance and or triathlete or whatever keywords that we utilize. It was quite a large number of keywords that we used. And uh, after screening and removal, we find, finally ended up with 44 studies. And in those 44 studies, some of them had multiple trials, whether it was a power output trial or whether it was a, a time to sorry, a time trial type trial. And so we actually ended up with 57 trials within 44 studies. That led us to about 1,001 participants, 82 were female, so just under 10% were female. And uh, 639 were in the performance time, whereas about 350 were in the power output. So a range of studies looking at males, females, and power outputs and, time to, um, and uh, performance time, sorry. The mean age of these participants was about 27 years old, and their VO2 max was 58 milliliters per kilo per minute. And what, about the, the what about the sports, the, the distribution of different disciplines or modalities? Okay. The vast majority, 75% of those studies, were cycling studies. <clears throat> Part of the reason for that is it's easier to undertake these labs. We've got more availability of cyclogometers and so on. There was only one triathlon study by Potgeiter et al. in 2018. I'll mention their results later on. There are some of them which utilize mixed method, uh, so mixed modality, and only a few that did running. So the vast majority were cycling studies. And the amount of caffeine given, I think I mentioned earlier, was five, or the mean was five mill milligrams of caffeine per kilo body mass given approximately 60 minutes beforehand. So that's typical. If you, if, if you want a summary of all of that, typically we use cyclists who were given five milligrams of caffeine 60 minutes before their exercise, before their typically 60 minutes of time trial activity. Yeah. And uh, one more comment going back a bit to what you said with the uh, ranking and uh, at least having a criteria of having at least uh, six points. That's not a subjective ranking. That's uh, a methodology that's been developed for this kind of studies. So, and you had uh, uh, two or was it more independent researchers, researchers that all evaluated these studies for this, this specific set of criteria that is generally uh, accepted as the way to to determine uh, the quality of a study so just to make make clear that it's not a subjective thing that can introduce a lot of bias no no it's it's very very good point so uh, a number of years ago there was actually some physiotherapists who wanted to do this and it's the pedro scale came out of work done by physiotherapists sorry and there's a specific criteria that we're all objectively, so you could do it or anyone else could do it, pick the same thing, we follow the same method, we should get the same 44 studies. So it's an objective, uh, you know, non-biased way of finding these uh, key articles. 
specific method in doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the results then. What what did you find when you pooled all of these studies and and analyzed the the magnitude of performance benefits if they existed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So uh, the key findings for us was a two point two percent, two point two six percent improvement in time. Now that doesn't seem like much, but as I said to you before, zero point five percent is usually a typical smallest worthwhile effect for elite athletes. So 2.26 is a good finding there. Relatively small effect size of 0.28, but that is still a meaningful, it's still statistically significant. Also, we showed a 2.92% in power output. Again, a small effect size of 0.22, but still statistically significant. So overall, when we pull the data and we take the units out of seconds for time and wattage for power output, we see a 2.52% overall performance improvement. So based on the data on a thousand athletes here across 44 studies, we show a two and a half percent improvement as a result of taking five milligrams of caffeine in this time trial activities. And uh, out of the 57 trials, 51 out of the 57 showed improvement in caffeine intake. Only six of them did not show improvement or showed negative improvements. Overall, the the weight of evidence seems to suggest then that caffeine is a good ergogenic aid for endurance athletes. Yeah, perfect summary. And uh, you did a an analysis as well where you investigated certain variables. For example, is there an impact on how much you benefit depending on whether you're a more well-trained in terms of a higher VO2 max uh, athlete or a less well-trained athlete also uh, looking at looking at some other some other variables, I think you looked at gender and perhaps perhaps some other ones. So, can you just go into that if there were any particular findings in in that regard that you had? That's a really good point, and we wanted to look at these co-variables because you know it'd be interesting for listeners and for readers to say, well, if I'm of a higher trained ability and someone is less, do I get a better or worse outcome? Or if I'm male as opposed to female, or if I'm um, doing a longer activity or a shorter activity. And we put all of those covariates into our analysis, into a meta-regression analysis here. And we showed no association between the caffeine dose, between the oxygen uptake, between exercise duration duration or exercise mode. So in, a, in effect, the summary that you can take from this is that if you take three to six milligrams per kilo caffeine, it will provide 2.5% improvement for men and women if you do anything over five minutes of acti- of endurance activity. So that's the overall summary. And yeah. that's a good finding. It's quite simplistic in that way that there's no, you know, there's no effects of these co-variables. And one important point there is the, the amount of caffeine. So uh, if we can assume that uh, in general, three to six milligrams give the same benefits, then it's probably better to err on the side of lower rather than higher uh, because of the potential gastric upset that you you might have from taking on too much too much caffeine so so that's a a particularly important finding i think in terms of the practical take-home messages definitely and for for these types of supplementation studies and i do lots of them we always look at what's the smallest amount that i need and it might be from a cost perspective it might be from a reduced side effect aspect or you know if you don't need to give something why bother giving it so there's an ethical concern as well so we really look for What's the smallest amount that we need to provide an effect? So three to six milligrams is can be quite large in terms of the amount for a person. But the key message from here is that's a range for these thousand people. What we need to do 
And if you're a sports scientist working with an athlete or if you're an athlete yourself, you need to experiment on yourself. Use a smaller amount to start with, record how you are, because ultimately you're your own subject in your own study. Because of these individual variations, as I've mentioned, we always seem to find in caffeine. We'll touch upon that later on. Um, we've given you a range. The scientists here, the science here has provided a rough range that seems to work. Now what you need to do is to make that precise for your individual requirements based on the various uh, issues like your gender, like uh, whether you use the oral contraceptive pill, whether you smoke, what type of activity you want to do, how habituated you are to caffeine, and so on. Yeah, perfect summary. What are some open question marks that remain and perhaps some limitations that uh, that that this uh, way of uh, analyzing the organic effect of caffeine has? Like To give you an example of what I mean, for example, the mode of the event we talked about most of these studies 75 percent being cycling studies what does that mean for the triathletes listening to this podcast are there any spe special considerations that they might need to consider as i said from our meta-analysis as long as it's over five minutes of endurance activity and it's you know predominantly aerobic activity that you're doing it doesn't seem to matter if it's swimming or cycling or running and uh, the the potgeiter et al study that was done on triathletes that were utilized in this. That was the only triathlon study. They had 26 participants who consumed six milligrams of caffeine 60 minutes before a triathlon. And uh, they looked at caffeine performance benefits for each of the three legs of the triathlon and the overall performance. Now, there was no difference in the um, cycling or the running legs, but the swimming leg statistically improved by 3.7% and then overall performance improved by 1.3%. So their, their conclusion from that study was that caffeine in small amounts, three to six milligrams, may uh, benefit uh, uh, triathletes. So that's for a triathlon perspective. But as I said, the summary of all of our studies on 44, uh, 57 trials from 44 studies then uh, is that as long as it's over five minutes, then you, you should get some benefit. Now, on a, on a related note, on a different paper that we've wrote, <clears throat> we looked at 20 different studies that looked at uh, time trial performance. And out of those 20 studies, 33% of the participants did not have any effect or had negative effect of caffeine. And that led us to other questions to say, you know, what could that be? Why could some people benefit from caffeine and why a uh, majority of people do benefit, but why are some people not benefiting? And that's that's the sort of question that we always ask ourselves with any supplementation study. Who are the responders? Who are the non-responders? Why do they respond? Why do they not respond? And how can we try and uh, mitigate some of these individual variances? So let's get into, into that then. Well, what have you found in terms of that individual difference in response? Yeah, that's that is a that, that's the sort of questions that many people are trying to grapple with. And because caffeine is ubiquitous, lots of people have it already in their daily lives, and because it's found in lots of different ways, and uh, it can impact in various ways, even for the same individual on different days. And the something to note as a rule of thumb: the more tired you are, the more fatigued you are, the better the effects of caffeine. Because what that does is, I mentioned to you earlier about adenosine, the more adenosine we have, and caffeine can mask that, then you'll have better 
you know, better response as a result. So all of those things need to be taken into consideration. Some of the co-variables for caffeine intake then are elite versus recreational. Most of these studies are still using recreational athletes. They're not using the creme de la creme right at the top, you know, the international um, athletes who, who might be competing on the world circuit, who might be at the Olympics and so on. We just, uh, we just are unable to, um, we just are unable to recruit those sorts of athletes into our studies. They are different. Physiologically, psychologically, they are a different beast to most of these recreational type athletes. That's something to be wary of. Um, there are more recreational athletes than these really, really elite athletes, but it's something to consider. The other thing to note, as we said, that Del Coso et al. paper showed that out of these 21,000 urine samples, 19% of those had other things in the urine as well. So co-utilization with caffeine. Part of the reason why, as I said, caffeine's adjuvant effects, it can help uh, you know, speed things up and it can slow things down as well. There was an interesting article I read about the New Zealand Rugby League team. A few years ago, they went from New Zealand to the UK to perform in the Rugby League World Cup. And because of the time difference and the jet lag, they were having caffeine to train and to be able to play in the evenings. But then to go to sleep, they were given them sleeping tablets. And unfortunately, well, they didn't realize the combination of those things, the caffeine actually made uh, the sleeping tablets work differently. So they, in effect, were like having recreational drugs rather than uh, going to sleep. So that, that was uh, an interesting little uh, article that caused a bit of a storm here in New Zealand. The other things that can impact on, on caffeine is smoking. So smoking increases caffeine metabolism and uh, age as well. So the older people have slower caffeine metabolism and also gender. We've, we've done some research on female athletes and uh, male athletes, of course. Menstrual cycle changes. So even within a 28-day cycle, caffeine metabolism changes during the different phases and uh, Contraceptive use changes caffeine metabolism as well. So if you're um, the typical half-life of caffeine is about three to five hours, it can be eight to twelve hours, and even more for women who are athletes who are uh, you know taking oral contraceptive pills. So all of these factors can confound the effect of caffeine. And in in research, we always try and, and minimise the co-variables so that we can really look at the effect of that treatment. But it's really hard to do, and it's hard to recruit for for people at times. And so. Hence, uh, sometimes the science can cannot always answer the specific question because of all the co-variables that are involved. Yeah, and that comes back to you need to test on yourself uh, at the end of the day. Um, in terms of the metabolism, uh, what does a slower or a faster metabolism mean for performance? I mean, if you have a, a, a slower metabolism and the half-life of caffeine is longer, does that just mean that Let's say you're doing an Ironman, you can potentially benefit from that for a longer time because you have a larger amount of caffeine in your body available. Or am I missing something there? Is it, is it something else that's going no, that, on with, with the metabolism? No, no that's, a, that's a really good point, uh, Michael. And uh, it's, it's true from, from a theoretical perspective, that does make sense. But remember, the body doesn't do one thing at a time. There are all sorts of other things going on all at once. And that is part of the issue with some of these... Um, studies that we try and isolate everything and just look at one single variable but the body does not look at one variable there's all sorts of other things going on at the same time so that's something to be wary of now one of the things i 
didn't mention about the co-variables was genetics. And uh, I knew you were going to ask me specifically about genetics, so I, I sort of left it. Um, so caffeine, caffeine is metabolized. And for those of you who are not necessarily aware, metabolism is basically a combination of catabolism, which is the breakdown of products, and anabolism, which is the buildup of products. And the sum of those two is metabolism. So caffeine is broken down by by the P450 enzymes that come out of the liver. And these P450 enzymes, basically, they, they're like the recyclers of the body and they recycle the drugs. So over 75% of any drugs that we take are metabolized by these P450 enzymes that come out of the liver, whether it's alcohol, whether it's nicotine, whether it's uh, um, uh, caffeine and, and other such drugs, okay? And the enzyme, sorry, the gene that codes for that is the CYP1A2 gene, which codes for these P450 enzymes. And this is responsible for more than 90% of caffeine metabolism. And uh, you, you just mentioned about fast and slow metabolism. Well, the, the actual allele here, the two A's, the AA is found in 40% of people typically, and they're what we call fast metabolizers, whereas the heterogeneous AC allele will, about, in about 50% of people, and that's what we call a slow metabolizer. And then there are ultra-slow, the two recessive genes, the C and C, uh, that 10% of the population are uh, ultra-slow. And they're the ones potentially who might be affected by caffeine and having caffeine in their system for a lot longer. I've talked to some cardiologists, and that's what they're really interested in because it's these people who have very high levels of caffeine if they have it, and that can uh, that can impact with their heart, and it can lead to uh, ECG abnormalities and increase the risk of cardiovascular complications. So that's, that's the sort of thing that can happen with uh, some of the population. So caffeine metabolism is based on this CYP1A2 gene. And there, are, there have been some studies around, around the effect of different genotypes on performance based on caffeine. And one of the more recent studies used 101 cyclists. That was one of the largest sized studies with caffeine and, and genetics and exercise. And these 101 cyclists took part in a 10-kilometer cycling time trial. And uh, they split the people into fast and ultra-slow metabolizers. And what they showed was that there was a 5 to 7% improvement in performance from taking small amounts, so 2 milligrams of caffeine or 4 milligrams of caffeine, in these uh, fast metabolizers, the one with the AA alleles. Whereas there was a 13% decrease in the performance in the C and C, the ultra-slow um, genotype. So that study showed then that the fast metabolizers are more likely to have a benefit from caffeine in endurance cycling, whereas the really ultra-slow metabolizers are unlikely to have it. But um, other studies no, show no effect of genotype using different types of doses, different uh, men, female and mix, and or different exercise modalities. So as I said earlier, yes, we can try and isolate the genetics part, but it mixes with other things, and so it complicates the issues. But we need more research to really try and uh, navigate our way through these uh, confounding variables. So that relates to caffeine metabolism, but it's not just about metabolism. And the CYP1A2 gene that codes for uh, these enzymes that break down caffeine and then obviously get rid of it in your urine. The other aspect is how does it get taken up into the cell? Because it's when it gets taken up into the cell, that's when it can do things within the cell itself. And as I mentioned before, caffeine 
really is a caffeine, uh, sorry, an adenosine antagonist, and especially in the brain. So there's another gene, we call that the Adora 2A gene, and that relates to caffeine sensitivity. So um, as we know, adenosine slowly builds up during the day and leads to the downregulation of these certain neurotransmitters. So in effect, in other words, it polices how much of these neurotransmitters get into the brain. And dopamine is one of these key neurotransmitters. Dopamine gives us the high. It's that it's that feeling of, you know, feeling great. You're feeling like anything can happen. Uh, some people call it the runner's high. Others might talk about uh, uh, euphoria. So pharmacologists call that state euphoria. And coaches might call it being in the zone. And that is what we try and push towards uh, when we exercise. And caffeine can help us there because it blocks the adenosine and allows more dopamine into the cell. So Adora2A codes for the sensitivity of that caffeine intake. And about 20 to 30% have the TT allele, and that gives you higher sensitivity to caffeine. Basically, uh, that means that you potentially have better effects to caffeine because you, 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 you can you know, change your baseline to what it uh, would be afterwards. But it also comes at a cost. It increases the, lots of research shows that uh, increases anxiety in these people. And because of that, they self-select and choose not to have caffeine as a result of that, if you're caffeine sensitive that way. Whereas um, another 20 to 30% have the CC alleles, and that is a lower sensitivity. So they might have more higher habitual intake of caffeine, but the downside of that is they have a less of an ergogenic effect. So if you are, you know, if you don't take caffeine as much, you can have a better effect from it. Whereas if you're more habitually taking it, you're less likely to have an effect um, from caffeine. And that's the sort of paradox that we have. And 45% uh, or so have the heterogeneous uh, um, CT allele there. And only one study so far has looked at the effect of uh, the Adora. And this study in 2015, they had 12 females who took 5 milligrams of caffeine, um, 5 milligrams per kilo body mass of caffeine, 20 minutes, and then one hour before, 20 minutes of pre-fatiguing activity, cycling activity, and then they did a 10-minute time trial. And what they found was that the guys in the CT or the CC group, these uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, lower sensitivity to caffeine, there was only one out of the six who showed improved performance, whereas six out of six all of the ones in the TT group, the ones who have a, a higher uh, sensitivity to caffeine, they all improve their performance. So that's just one study so far. And, you know, we need other studies to corroborate these sorts of findings. Uh, but it's some um, interesting information there that it's not necessarily how well you metabolize caffeine, whether it comes in and goes out again, but whether it gets taken up into your cells and then whether the body, how the body utilizes it in the cells itself and especially the brain cells. So your interesting question earlier about uh, you know ultra long distances or Ironman athletes uh, could be very true. So it might be that if you're an Adora TT, so a higher sensitivity to caffeine, plus a really slow metabolizer, a CC with regards to CYP1A2, uh, so you have a really slow release and it stays in your body for longer and you take it up and it makes better effect when it gets into the cell, that might be the best sort of individual to have um, um, caffeine in the body for longer and provides better effects for much longer endurance distances. Whereas if you have this Adora T to a TT higher sensitivity again, but a fast metabolizer, so the CYP1A2AA uh, allele, you don't necessarily require caffeine for long periods of time. So it might be much better for shorter endurance events. 
So that that sort of uh, research is yet to be done. We it's really really challenging to find the right people because you don't know who they are in the population and we have to then mitigate some of the other aspects how much caffeine they have whether they're smokers or not we need to find the similar homogeneity in terms of their uh, training status and other things like that so it's really difficult to uh, to find um but one day we'll get these research this research done and then we'll be able to hopefully answer that question that you just posed so in in a nutshell then um, different genetics combined with different habits and different exercise durations and so on may then indicate how much dosage and what sort of timing before the event that you have. And as I said, certainly more research needs to be done in this area. That is uh, super interesting. And uh, we could go very deep into this, but I do have a few follow-up questions. First, in terms of the uh, CYP1A2 gene, the the caffeine metabolizing gene, did a study that you mentioned with the 100 cyclists only look at the the two homogeneous alleles and not at the heterogeneous uh, kind of slow but not ultra slow metabolizer or did i get um, that wrong i uh, the only data that i've got right now um is on that i'd have to chase it up again it's been a while since i've read that paper so i can't actually say but i presume if i was to assume anything um that they would have had they would have looked at all three um, combinations because if you do one, you, you should do the other. But I, I would have to uh, recheck the paper. I haven't got it at hand right now. Okay. And uh, the second, by the way, I can uh, probably post a link to it in the in the episode show notes so people can go and have a look at it themselves if they're interested, uh, just as I will do with the meta-analysis itself. With the, the sensitivity, uh, on on the other hand, um, what I was going to ask there is that there, there has been some talk about having to taper off caffeine for the last week or two weeks before a race to really see the benefits. And you mentioned there that people tend to self-select whether they are caffeine consumers or not based on the anxiety that the high sensitivity gives them. Are those two connected in some way or are they disconnected? No, very much so. Uh, So one of the one of the things that we find is we can put ourselves into three different categories, like a, excuse me, a, a naive user. So that means someone like myself, I don't drink tea or coffee. I don't take energy drinks. I barely drink any cola. So I, I'd be a caffeine uh, naive user because I'm quite sensitive to it. And uh, I, if I took caffeine as an ergogenic aid, which I have done, whether it's for academic work or sometimes for football purposes, but it, it really it really messes up my sleep and it gives me sort of, you know, anxiety related issues. And so I only use it when I need to as, as an ergogenic aid, but that's it. Other people are what we, you know, most people around the world would be habitual users of caffeine. They have moderate doses and so on. And then we have the extreme amount of people who are very, very high users of caffeine. And for people like myself, if I have caffeine, yes, I can use it as an ergogenic aid. For the middle group, the habitual users, they might need to reduce a small amount of their uh, of their uh, caffeine, as you mentioned, taper off, but not too much, and then use it as an ergogenic aid. And uh, their really heavy users will completely have to come down towards uh, much lower levels if they really want to see any benefits, because otherwise they would have to take so much caffeine that it goes into the realms of toxicity and we don't want that to happen so um the other thing to note is that just like any any drug that 
exogenous drug that we have, when we take it away, we, we will undertake some sort of cold turkey. And the cold turkey for some people, if they take caffeine, is the jittery, is that uh, emotional, is the uh, behavioral sort of issues that they might have. And that might actually reduce their performance. So if you are going to taper off caffeine, make sure you do it well in advance to offset some of these cold turkey type effects before you use it as, as an ergogenic aid. And that yeah, will that, and that, that makes will sense. Your risk of, of jitteriness and, and uh, uh, nervousness and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask, how well established is this? Because I have been asked this question, and when I was looking into it, obviously not <laughs> to the same degree that you have been doing, but I just saw a couple of uh, of uh, different uh, different results on it. So, so I sort of thought that it's not necessarily super well established but is your opinion then and that from what you've seen that it is quite well established that if you are at least somebody who habitually consumes a larger amount of caffeine you really do need to taper off to see as big an effect as you would would want to that's that's very true so there was a, a nice study in 2008 by Sokman et al and uh, they they showed some arbitrary inf information about that so if you're if you're a person like me who doesn't take caffeine, what's the typical theoretical benefit from caffeine? If you're a, a, a normal caffeine user and you, uh, are, you know, come off it and then taper and then use it, it shows you theoretical aspects there. And also, if you're a, um, if you just carry on maintaining, maintaining your normal levels and then you have the caffeine as an ergogenic aid, it just will not have any effect. So it's a nice paper and I can pass you the link later on so that uh, the readers can and the listeners can uh, see the paper. And it gives them some nice graphs uh, to show that. And uh, from that, I've actually put prepared a table, which I'm more than happy to share with you, which um, which shows, which shows uh, the acute and effects and then the tolerance related things and then the caffeine cessation and it and it is quite clear uh what sort of things happen to individuals most individuals obviously everyone has individual effects and uh I, i'm happy to share that with you which you can share with your listeners uh, that would be brilliant thank you and uh then the final follow-up question i guess is uh Genetic tests are now available for consumers, and uh, the caffeine genes are some of the the genes that are generally tested for in these types of consumer directed tests. Would your recommendation be that if somebody wants to find out how to optimize their endurance sport performance, that that is a good thing to do to figure out that what what your uh, your genetics are in those uh, particular genes, or what what's your opinion on that? Yeah, the the whole genomic analysis is very complicated. We're still very early days in this, but the business for it has increased. I've read a report saying that it's going to be worth about 10 billion US by next uh, in the next couple of years. That's how big that lifestyle genomic testing is is going to become, and uh, so people are doing it. And we are still, as I said, in the earlier stages of that. My hope and my my hope, I guess, from an athletic perspective is that we will start shedding some light on that because as, as you're very well aware, and I'm sure many athletes are as well, that um, many people respond to certain things. Now, for example, creatine. Uh, lots of athletes might take it, but 25-30% of people, they've got sufficient creatine in their bodies or some other reason means that they're not going to have an effect from it. Similarly with caffeine, as I've said, 33% of users based on these results of 20 studies that we've seen uh, show no effect for, for some people. So could it be a genetic 
rationale or reason for that. And if you under, undertake the information um, to undertake the analysis and find the information, we might be better able to say, well, athlete A is better with this supplement, athlete B is better with this supplement, athlete C is better with that supplement. Rather than a traditional way, it's you're all going to get this, you're all going to get you know, drug A, drug B, and drug C, or supplement A, supplement B, supplement C, and hopefully it works for you. So it's about trying to uh, fine-tune uh, the best supplement based on the ge genetics. I think we're still a long way away from that yet. More research certainly needs to be done in that area. And I'd just like to segue into uh, one of the studies, or some of the studies my PhD student Kyle Southwood is doing in, in this area. So we're, we're looking at, it's the first study that's looking at the effect of the SIT genes and their DORA genes together on endurance performance. We're using triathletes and, and cyclists and runners, and it's been a long road trying to recruit sufficient people because we want to look at um, the interaction of uh, the different uh, different mix of fast and slow metabolizers and also the caffeine sensitive, oh, sorry, high sensitive and low sensitivity aspects, and uh, also combine that with the timing of caffeine and the dosage of caffeine re received in these well uh, trained athletes to try and explore some of these things in a bit more detail. So hopefully some of what we're doing here, plus some of the work that's been done uh, all around the world, because caffeine is one of the most popular ergogenic aids, uh, we might shed some, some light into these areas in the future. All right. Yeah. So at least it sounds like you're not it's not a complete clear yes, you should go and get a genetic test. You might you might gain some interesting information, but uh, would you say that you can get that information by just trial and error yourself, you being your own experimental one? You've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Michael. Yes, ultimately, yes, from a scientific perspective, we want to be able to do work that we use a small sample size and then we generalize out to populations. But ultimately, for, for athletes, it's an N of one. It's a sample of one. What's going to work for you? What you record, how you felt, how you performed, work with your athlete, work with your coach uh, to find out what the best uh, thing is for you in that particular situation. And that's the, the best advice I can give right now. Genetics may play a part in, in the future. It might give you some idea, um, but um, it, it, it is still very, very new in that in that space. Right. So let's uh, wrap this up. Can, can you just summarize the practical takeaways for the listeners, endurance athletes, what what would the recommendations be around using caffeine as an organic aid? Great. So I'll, I'll put this into three or four different points here. First thing is depending on habituation. So whether you're a non-user of caffeine or a moderate user or heavy user, if you're a non-user, you certainly need to test the efficacy. You need to test whether caffeine will work for you because, yes, it might help you uh, on a one-off, but then if it reduces your sleep, and if it makes you ill in other ways, then it's going to have knock-on effects on subsequent training, subsequent co competition. So always test the efficacy of this supplement or any other supplement well in advance of your um, uh, competition. If you're a moderate user, reduce the amount that you might take, taper off, as you've said, uh, but not completely remove because it comes with those cold turkey effects. If you're a heavier user of caffeine, uh, above 6 to eight milligrams per kilo body mass per day, then you need to limit that amount. Otherwise, you will get no effect of the caffeine as an ergogenic aid. So that's the habituation side. In terms of timing, I think I alluded to it before. If you've got really shorter endurance events, then you, you can take the caffeine further away from your performance. 
you know, up to two or three hours beforehand. Whereas if it's a, a longer duration activity, about one hour seems to be the, the consensus on that front. And uh, in terms of dosage, Again, it depends on the individual and the effect required. Uh, the genetics might play a part in that, and more evidence needs to come onto that. But if you do take the test and you know what you are, then you might wish to uh, consider how much you take there. Uh, habituation, I've just mentioned, the training status uh, as well, and uh, some of the other aspects like uh, whether you're female and have OCS, uh, sorry, contraceptive steroids, um, whether you're a smoker and, and so on. In terms of what type of caffeine to use, the pill form or the tablet form or the you know powder form is much better. You're only taking caffeine, nothing else. And just be wary of the dosage in there. Um, obviously, you can have poisoning from anything, uh, but especially with, with caffeine. And so check and double check how much you're taking. But the caffeine powder seems to be better than coffee or energy drinks or anything else like that. And as I said, the genetic analysis may give you some idea with regards to the types of uh, you know where you are heading uh, but more evidence needs to come out to really specifically say well if you're x and y genotype you definitely need to do this in, in terms of the in terms of the mode of uh of ingestion a lot of sports nutrition companies seem to offer liquid form caffeine what's your take on that uh, as opposed to powder and pill form um Part of the reason why uh, the pill and the powder is it's, it's easier to control. You can spoon it, you can weigh it, you can do that. And that's what we use for our research purposes. Uh, in liquid form, yes, you can, of course, you can take it. But it, as long as it doesn't have too many other things in there. So, for example, energy drinks have a whole host of other things in there that we, we sort of don't necessarily want people to take. And you, you and the other thing for really elite athletes, if you if you know that it's just caffeine in that in that uh, pot that you've got, well, it can't be contaminated with anything else, especially when it comes to drug testing and so on. Yeah, I think that uh, that is what many. I personally, I use uh, science in sports uh, caffeine shots. So, uh, you're it's not a you know an energy drink or a coffee or anything like that. It's just like caffeine in liquid i mean i'm sure there's some sugar and stuff like that in it flavors but but it's inform med sport uh tested and validated so so it should be safe so and those so are I, the kind, I, kinds of shots that i that i see some other sports nutrition companies offering offering as well so generally just caffeine and some some hopefully harmless substances mm -hmm. Good point there, Michael. And uh, I've also done research on caffeine and carbohydrate. Now, the, the caffeine and carbohydrate thing came out a few years ago. It was the Australian Institute of Sport, a sports nutritionist by the name of Greg Cox. He did his PhD on that. And uh, what they found was that uh, athletes were uh, having flat cola. So they'd you know, have, take the carbon out and drink the flat cola drinks, um, and, and they showed improved performance. And they did a study on that, and they showed individual effects of added carbohydrate on time trial performance, individual effects of added caffeine uh, on time trial performance, but synergistic and uh, complementary effects of caffeine so and carbohydrate. So basically, relative to the placebo, no caffeine, no carbohydrate, the caffeine and carbohydrate provided the best performance. And we've shown some of that in team sports athletes as well uh, with regards sprint performance or skill performance. There's the Caffeine and carbohydrate seems to work better than caffeine alone or carbohydrate alone. Yeah, that's very that's interesting. A yeah, different discussion again. Today's discussion was just about caffeine. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I remember as a as a kid when I was playing football in one of the tournaments that we attended, we our coaches gave us cola, but not flat cola. <laughs> but I, I can't remember people really having any any issues with that. But but I think we were quite lucky because that uh, carbonated uh, drinks really could could mess you up for for something like that. <laughs> yeah, they can do. Yeah, cause lots of gastrointestinal distress. Yes. Yeah. So, and just one more follow-up. You mentioned there all the different factors that might affect the dosage, but just to reiterate, three to six milligrams per kilogram body weight is sort of the range that we're generally looking at based on yeah. based on the research. Yeah. That's so correct, yes. Let's move into the rapid-fire questions, and these are just one-sentence answers. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource? Uh, I don't actually read sports books or anything like that, but I read lots of mindfulness mindfulness books, and I think they help in all aspects of life, especially in, in exercise and coming back from training and recovery and things like that. So mindfulness books, I would strongly recommend that to your listeners. Do you have a specific favorite there? Uh, there's a couple that I've got. I can't remember the authors, so I can't say, I'm afraid. Okay. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Perseverance. Perseverance and dog-headedness to get the job done. It builds anxiety for me, but I know my skills are about just getting the job done. And uh, uh, that's helped me in many ways. And what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Uh, from my sporting perspective, I guess uh, more adherence to recovery and flexibility. Key fitness components that are unfortunately um, ignored at my peril and uh, I've had so many injuries playing football typically that uh, I think if I had taken better care of myself from a flexibility and recovery perspective younger then uh, it would have been less problematic when I'm older hmm. and finally uh, are you on social media what's uh, are there any places where the listeners can follow you and the research that you're you're doing twitter research gate or anything like that that you want to mention um, yes, I am available on ResearchGate and LinkedIn, and also I have my own website, www.ajmolali.com, and you can pass the link on to your listeners afterwards. And that's got uh, all the papers that I've published, and usually you can link through there into uh, the, the journal article itself. So I do need to update that, but a uh, lot of the caffeine papers are available on there. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much, much Admiral, for uh, coming on and sharing all this information. It's uh, been really interesting to to hear uh, all all of this, uh, the research that you've done and uh, and the findings that that we now know of from caffeine and endurance sports. Thank you for your time. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with uh, Dr. Ali. As usual, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll also have links to all the relevant resources, including the meta-analysis we discussed and some other papers that we mentioned as well, specific papers that were discussed. Uh, I'll also have Dr. Ali's website and his ResearchGate profile. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's it. Go and uh, find it on scientifictriathlon.com. Click through to podcast and the latest episode. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out as usual. So stay subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss anything. And then next Monday, I interview Josh Portner. And Josh is really a wealth of knowledge when it comes to many kind of technical topics around cycling. And what we will specifically discuss is first and foremost, optimal tire pressure, which is uh, 
a big topic of its own, but we also cover aerodynamics and uh, smart equipment upgrades in general, both in terms of aerodynamics, but just generally smart equipment upgrades that will make you faster on the bike without necessarily getting fitter. What are the things that are worth investing in and what are the things that you should only get if you've covered all the other bases? So definitely uh, a highly recommended episode to stay tuned for. Now, there's a little less than two weeks uh, left to take advantage of the Beginner Ironman training plan launch discount. So right now, until the end of May, you can get that plan for 60% off its normal price because we're still in the launch period. And uh, especially at the time of this recording, which is early May that I'm recording this intro and outro, and actually the uh, interview was done several weeks earlier, early April. Uh, but uh, still right now, I don't really know when any of us might actually be racing. But uh, at some point, we, we will be racing, whether it's this year or next year. So if you are planning on doing an Ironman and you it's, it might be your first or it might be your fourth or fifth, but you're still kind of more towards the back of the pack, so you would consider yourself a beginner in that sense, then take this opportunity to get this plan. Now, while it's heavily discounted, during this launch period which uh, lasts until the end of may you can find it on scientifictriathlon.com on the training plans page big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com take the free online sweat test and get 15 percent off your order of electrolyte products with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, brand prescription, eyeglasses, and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart. Keep loving crap.